Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the architecture teacher, curator, and editor, Shumi Bose. Bose was a curatorial collaborator at the 2012 Venice Biennale with David Chipperfield, and along with Finn Williams and Jack Self, she curated the Biennale's British Pavilion in 2016. She's written and edited for a long list of architecture publications, and from 2014 to 2015 was senior editor at Blueprint Magazine. She currently teaches at Central St. Martins, where she coordinates the History, Theory, and Contextual Studies program. I met with Bose last month in St. Leonard's Churchyard in Shoreditch, where we talked about, among other things, how she sees the role of the curator as taking care of conversations, and how her work as an educator and editor form a part of this project. We also touch on her experience of identity politics and architecture, and the difficult yet liberating position she's found herself in as an intellectual generalist. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. I was interested in talking with you is because you're not you're not an architect or a designer actually Mm -hmm. Um, but you work in this world that is um, I guess about building context around those disciplines Mm. Uh, I work near them you work near them yeah yeah and um, I was interested in talking to you because to me you almost have this custodial role within the culture of architecture, Mm, or at least that's one way I've thought about it. And the reason that resonates with me is because I feel like I'm kind of aspiring to something similar with this interview project. I'm working in in this realm of like, um, or this system of ideas and language that helps support uh, an object, be it a building uh, or, or a design. Um, but it's not the thing itself, <laughs> and no, sometimes, and sometimes the language actually works to obscure the thing, mm. uh, much in the way that uh, scaffolding can do. Mm-hmm. But um, I wanted to learn more from you. Excellent tie-in. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to learn more from you about um, your role as a curator and a critic yes. and an educator. I didn't know I wanted to be an architect, but I really enjoyed articulating what people were doing around me that seemed to be involved in the city. I seemed to be able to find uh, a lot of meaning in this activity and um, 
jacket. This is an entertainment thing. So <laughs> I will just tell you that uh, when I was at college, my tutors gave me, one of my tutors gave me the nickname Alistair Campbell, which I resent on lots of levels. But it was because I would tend to discuss other people's projects in a way that, you know, could be said to be spin. <laughs> um, so that discussion and translating something that I didn't quite have a full engagement with to a way that it was nonetheless perceived in a place where it exists, architecture exists whether you're an architect or not. No, so um, that actual crossover point became more and more meaningful to me, reading about it, talking about it, going to exhibitions where you can't exhibit architecture, the thing itself is in its place doing its job, better or worse. Mm. But you're always at various stages of remove, which gives you obviously different perspectives and, and those are valuable and as we learn that the act of making buildings is more and more taken away from the architect, there are a whole other bunch of skill sets and places of knowledge and context where thinking is still relevant. So a um, long way of saying less hang-ups about that nowadays. Mm. Also less hang-ups about um, being involved in, in design. Uh, when I went to school, um, I suppose I was somewhat intimidated by the talent around me and kind of found mine. What I'm curious about is what it seems to be a clear decision you made after your undergrad to move very quickly into um, criticism and architecture writing. Yeah. Um, and so starting in 2007, you worked freelance in an editorial capacity for Blueprint magazine. I've been working on and off in various capacities for Blueprint since just after I graduated, which was like 2005. Mm. Um, it was the first place I worked as an intern. Um, so after I, at the, at the end phases of doing my um, undergrad, I realized I was better and more excited at talking about things than mm. making them happen. And so I wrote to everyone on my bookshelf that I thought was good. Um, continuously until they gave me internships and so I worked at Blueprint on and off since 2005 uh, and then yeah so 2007 would have been in the thick of that. Uh, I just want to read through really quickly the other places that you had um, you had worked at in that period so there's in uh, addition yeah. to Blueprint Black Dog Publishing this is in New York? No that was here oh, okay actually in the T building just up there. Oh really? And then the Architects Journal, the Architects Newspaper, both in 2007 and 2008. That's in New York. Uh-huh. And then the Storefront for Art and Architecture uh -huh. um, in New York, C-Lab, uh, which is part of Columbia's architecture program. Um, you're working on the magazine Volume. Yes. As, as well as independent book projects. Uh, Urban Omnibus. Also in New York. That mm -hmm. was in Gowanus at the time. And then um, I think from that point, uh, you started to hone, hone your focus in on, on curating or taking on a curatorial position. Yeah, it's always been a little bit, um, can I say, I just like hoard myself to anybody that, was, <laughs> that I thought was good, that was having this kind of discussion at the edge of architectural practice and engagement within a broader audience, whether that was an academic audience or a public one, mm -hmm. and, and kind of placed myself in various arenas where that was happening. I suppose that was semi-conscious. Uh -huh. um, what do you think you were looking for in all those places? 
just learning what it was to have a discussion about architecture in each of those contexts. Like Storefront is very unique. You're really, I mean, it's a place that's born of a very specific kind of, with Stephen Hall and Vito Kanchi's building, um, fusion of art and architectural discussion. But it's also a storefront and it opens onto the street and your engagement with the public is incredibly direct. Um, I remember having to block the cracks of storefront with newspapers so snow wouldn't come in that winter. That was also the winter that Obama was elected. It was a very electric time to be there. Um, so in terms of architectural engagement with the public, it was just extreme. At the same time, C-Lab and Volume were kind of experimental places to be. Lots of the city invading into um, the workspace. But yeah, I think I was just experimenting with places where this discussion was happening and not necessarily looking for a flash of lightning, but just seeing how this thing was being passed by people who were architects and people who weren't, because mm. that's where I felt I was. And, and like during that period in New York, was there a particular um, role model or persona that you encountered? Um, that you thought, like, I could Such do that an too? an American question. <laughs> I'm actually Canadian, but... <laughs> North American still counts, doesn't it? Um, I, I appreciate the difference. But no, uh, I say that because um, a very good friend of mine whom I used to work with on the AJ, Jaffer Kolb, who's um, got a fantastic practice now called New Initiatives, um, he used to ask me this, like, who's your, who do you want to be? Who's your role model? Who do you want to be in five years? Or, like, where do you want to be in five or ten years? I just have to qualify. I, I do, I am aware of how cliche that question is. <laughs> I know. It's, I, ask, I ask this question to and people I'm, and my students, and they hate me, and that's okay. The thing is, I've actually never asked a guest that question before. <laughs> but I feel like I have to with you, because for me, your role has been the hardest to define. And it's so... It's really interesting, because it's been, from my part, relatively intuitive although I've had numerous people say surely not like you can't it can't be just like random guesswork I remember writing to Joseph Creamer before working at Storefront he was directing it at the time having been introduced to him at London Festival of Architecture in I guess 2008 and um, enjoying working with him and, and seeing somebody who I later interviewed for my MA thesis and we were talking about this difference between teaching, curating and editing, because mm. uh, he had been, he was at the time editing Domus magazine. And how it was, I mean this word curation, it's no news that this is a really abused word at the moment, it's as bad as awesome, but the idea of taking care of a conversation, whether that conversation is for students, for academic learning, or whether it's for a conversation within a community or within a broader public it's kind of the same function whether you're editing a publication curating a program of events um, selecting a set of objects or artifacts to have a conversation with each other and, and you know, thinking about how that display capacity might work to generate a conversation in an audience it's um, a similar process of nurturing and, and selecting Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it feels like I'm doing the same thing, the format changes. Right. Um, I love that phrase, taking care of a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and what it makes me wonder is, um, to what extent the, um, the caretaker or the interviewer um, 
is in the background um, mm -hmm. or invisible, or to what extent they are um, maybe from that position trying to somehow influence or manipulate the wrong word, but steer a guide. No, of course, and um, especially right now, that's something to be very conscious of the sort of capacity for manipulation that simply editing is. And this is something that's, this is why I, I love editing. Writing gives me vertigo much more than it did when I was actively being a journalist. But mm. editing somebody's voice is a huge responsibility. Editing and curating a syllabus is a huge responsibility. And, and how much of that you acknowledge, I think is fairly critical. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, sorry, mm. car. <laughs> Um, let me think. I mean, one of my first lessons that I'm past students, and I'm going to think this is so much of a repeat method, and it kind of is, but it's an important thing to say to first year students that history in most Latin languages is the same word for story. And it's a good way to get people to realize that themselves. There's usually a few French, Spanish, Italian speakers. And so if they acknowledge that historia is the same as history, then you kind of feel that responsibility or culpability of the storyteller mm. and the fact that they must not believe anything that they read or indeed anything that I tell them as fact and that there's a separation between historical fact and history as it's told or written down or um, interpreted mm. is, is a really massive difference and it's both where the excitement and exhilaration lies in unpicking those but also where the responsibility lies in understanding that even in putting things together yourself you're doing that and you're bringing stuff from you into that. Mm. I can imagine that um, especially within architecture school um, students attitudes towards history um, do treat them more as fact and to some extent even dogma that yep. um, certain ideologies in architecture are incredibly compelling and infectious. And so I wonder like, how you see your role in that regard in terms of... Just to point out that that's what they are. Uh -huh. That they are perhaps viruses, that they are perhaps um, infections that one passes through and develops antibodies and all of that. I mean, I've never used that bodily analogy, but just to point out that and to get them to see it in others that this is a phase, you know, Corbusier is great for that, he goes through phases, so is, I mean, London's very good for that. Mm. London's a fantastic canvas for doing that. You can literally walk through distances and go, look at the mood people are in here, what were they trying to say? And then suddenly the mood changes because that's not cool anymore. And I'm not saying that it's nothing to do with dumbing down language or anything, it's just to do with making things absolutely legible. Mm. So you currently coordinate um, the delivery of history, theory, and contextual studies um, at Central St. Martin's in the undergraduate honors program. That's right. We call it contextual studies. I joke because um, history sounds boring and scary and, <laughs> and factual and all the things that I don't do with uh -huh. my students. So it's introducing this point of contingency. Absolutely. And you're, you're almost wholly responsible for setting the curriculum, as I understand it? Well, certainly 
I work with my team uh -huh. closely, my team being the great faculty at, um, in special practices at Centre St. Martins. Um, so it's complementary to the tone and mood of things that are going on. But in terms of yeah, selecting readings and um, pacing out the three years that I have students with me. Mm. So yeah, I do oversee that for the whole three years of BA. And so if a curriculum is itself a kind of conversation, how are you seeing your role in taking care of the curriculum of that program? What kind of decisions are you having to make about um, which, <laughs> um, which narratives to amplify or uh, which ones to suppress? It's a really good question and a constant struggle because I have such a small amount of time with them. I mean, we over-deliver on contextual studies at CSM. I've taught at various schools across London, and I don't want to get into like specifics, but we do over-deliver at, at CSM, and still it's barely enough time for me to skim over. There's no point trying to be um, definitive and fully factual in, in every kind of stage of architectural history. Not only is that boring for students, but it's not, uh, there's no utility to it per se. And utility is something that students seek, especially paying so much money. Mm. So, um, at the same time, there is a responsibility because there's a certain amount, a certain sketch of architectural history that you ought to be equipped with in order to go forward. So, it's a, it's a, it is a struggle. Um, and the way I deal with it is somewhat clumsy um, in terms of content. I do look at it more in terms of skilling up and giving students confidence to think and to uh, perceive when someone is perhaps giving them a narrative and why that might be and to look outside of perhaps the small or specific roles of the architect to understand what else might be colouring that in. So if we spend the first year trying to do that and trying to do that often using London as a canvas, so trying to do that really through looking at built works and, and how they might have evolved. The second year, I think we um, get our teeth more stuck into theories and um, ideologies and historiography. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily use those words that much in class, again, because mm -hmm. they're somewhat dull, but the trick I to use is to actually skill students up to be doing these things and to develop a capacity for doing these things such that even if they're touching on content that I don't particularly get into let me think about something like we don't spend like hours and hours talking about deconstructivism we could if I was at Cornell maybe we mm -hmm. would um, but we don't but I hope that with the skills that the students have, if they were to look at that as a movement or as a something that happened in time, that they would have the skills to unpack that. Um, in the third year, it's more about navigating an individual course of study. So they might start with a question that's super vague. It might start from somewhere in the pit of their intestine, but if they can wrestle that into an academic piece of writing, mm. then they can do that. It's, it's more about that kind of skill. Mm. Um, so you mentioned uh, specific ideas like um, deconstructivism or, uh -huh. what, was it? what was it? I mentioned deconstructivism, yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned specific ideas like deconstructivism and then certain institutions like Cornell. And there's, a, there's like definitely um, 
an establishment tradition and thinking mm -hmm. about architecture and its various uh, movements and um, developments over time. And yeah, inevitable I, and problematic, but inevitable. Yeah. yeah, but then what I'm curious about, like from your position uh, and your identity, is how that's contextualized for you, having not grown up mm -hmm. in the UK or the US. And you, mm -hmm. you were born in Calcutta? No, I was actually born here. Oh, okay. We moved to Calcutta, I was born and bounced around the northeast of England mostly. And then we moved to Calcutta when I was six, a few days before I turned six. Huh. Um, and then me and my mum and my sister stayed out there for six, seven years. We came back when I was of high school age, when my sister was at college age. So I was 12, 13, and my mm. sister was 18. So there was like a formative period Definitely. of your early life. Part of my childhood I can remember best was in India. Yeah. Mm. And so, what does it what does it mean for you to have to bring that context into into your teaching or into your ideas about architecture and what ought to be taught now? Yeah. Again, I, I have to speak completely honestly. I didn't bring any chips on shoulders. I think I was just ahead of the wave of identity politics being as strong as they are now. And that's not something I say with either pride or guilt. It's just that I would forget what color I was or what race I was very often in the northeast of England because I didn't see very many other people <laughs> that were different. So I would forget until rare instances when it was pointed out. Um, and coming back again was more about being in a different culture and adapting to it rather than feeling like isolated and in any feeling any lack um, in terms of my position as a teacher I genuinely didn't think about it at all until I mean, I've been told in jobs that oh it's good that you're here because you tick a box or two and I don't think that was said meanly it was just happened to be the case mm. um, but as a teacher, and on panel discussions, I'm often asked as, please, we need a woman, or it'd be good to have someone of minority, that happens. And we can talk about that slightly separately. But as a teacher, I had no idea until a colleague pointed out to me a couple of years ago that he had overheard a couple of students saying, oh, it's cool that Jimmy's a brown girl. I just had no sense of perceiving myself. Um, and the second I heard that, it meant a lot to me. I was like, oh shit, um, that's significant for me to realize. And so I hadn't been wearing it particularly heavily in my mind up until recently. I think this is probably true for some women in the case of feminist or um, gender-related identity politics. They were fights that I thought were sort of broadly fought <laughs> until recent events, um, which is really naive of me, but also maybe a testament to the fact that I didn't face too many barriers or, or didn't perceive too many obstacles myself. Mm. Um, again, maybe that's completely naive and they were there and I just blithely didn't see them. But um, now, yeah, I do feel the need to recognize when I teach in my syllabus, like, guys, have you noticed who we're looking at? and let's have a tally of where these people come from. Okay, so what do you think about where you guys come from? Do you think nothing was going on at that time? Do you want to find out what was going on at that time and come back and we can talk about it next week, maybe? Mm. Um, and try and instigate those questions. What I won't do and what I'm occasionally asked to do is revise the canon. Mm. Um, 
Look at your reading list, it's all white men. It happens that, certainly when we're looking at the 20th century, which we do in the um, second year, at least for the first half of the 20th century, most of the writings are by white men, at least the, you know, straight from the mouth mm. of. And I want my students to read those. There's no way I'm going to handicap them by not having them read them. Now we can question why it's just those people, and we can then try and seek out more readings. Mm. But I'm not going to sort of um, Benetton my curriculum <laughs> for the sake of it, uh -huh. because at least not without my students being actively involved. If they want to do that, if we want to try that as an exercise, how hard would it be to 50-50 this curriculum mm. or what have you? We could do that, but we could only do that once we have a critical capacity, which comes from knowing what the canon is, with its parameters, with its injustices, or what have you. I just want to touch on that point you raised about identity politics within um, um, the context of your role as a, as a kind of mediator or chairperson or jurist or yes. whatever. <laughs> Could you talk more about that and what it means to you? Yeah. Um, well, look, it's always, as I was saying, as a, as a non, I'm not an active design professional. And so um, from early on, there was a little bit of angst to do with what is my role on these panels. Um, and when it gets mapped out for you, your role is to be woman, or your role is to be brown girl, mm. or your role is to be minority, what have you. Um, so it's a little bit disappointing sometimes. Um, I used to try not to feel that um, because at least it's good to have that gesture but those aren't roles that I've ever chosen to wear I, in my own work I didn't like seek out that for any particular motivation that came from inside of me so to be read as that is is strange mm. um, at least again that's how I used to feel early on in my career and probably in your 20s when you know you're more up for defining yourself rather than having things defined onto you. Now I genuinely don't mind um, because that's okay. Just um, if that's the gesture that needs to be made, it needs to be made and there's no point not allowing it to be made. Mm. And I don't really feel that it's a restriction to not be myself or talk about my interests as mm -hmm. well as being these other things. Mm. Also, um, having had to do this myself, like having had to curate events and program things, it's hard sometimes to, you know, balance that urge towards getting the best speakers and then cosmetically or aesthetically appearing like you've got um, a range of speakers that is politically correct. It is, I'm not saying it's not worth doing, it absolutely is, especially now as um, seeing yourself and seeing a reflection of yourself in positions is impactful I recognize even though I didn't feel it as a barrier myself but um, it is so I, I would never object to taking part in um, unless it's done cynically which mm. does happen unless it's very clear that you're being sort of paraded out for a particular reason and your actual value isn't recognized but that's minor it's happened a few times I, I can dish dirt if you want to but um, there have been times when, you know, for, ex for instance, in conferences where people are getting paid to appear and, like, I'll be paid much less than 
or I'll be offered much less than other speakers for no real conceivable reason. And I don't know what I wouldn't want to say. Mm -hmm. um, that's difficult. Uh -huh. I think what's, um, what's interesting for me is that um, these two things almost exist um, in parallel, but they don't touch. Or like in terms of the, the public image of the conversation versus the content of the conversation. I mean, something I'm really, I was really conscious of watching past, um, past interviews and um, public events that you had um, taken on a chairperson role in, is that quite often it is striking, actually, that the, um, the kind of vision of the conversation is one that's often of kind of generational difference, mm -hmm. gender difference, and racial difference. I'm thinking specifically in this case of uh, your conversation with Richard Rogers at the British Library. That's right. And then also um, you mediated a discussion between Will Alsop and... And Paul Shepard. And yeah. Paul Shepard, yeah. And again, it was two, two people of a completely different era, a completely different cultural experience, yeah. reminiscing um, in a way that was almost... Um, it was very difficult I think initially for an audience to grasp. And then there's you clawing, clawing them back into some kind of present. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, which aspect of this to talk about? There's undoubtedly a streak of cosmetics in the way that I'm often drafted into these situations. Um, which I really don't resent because it gives me amazing opportunities. Fuck, I'll take it. Um, but I think also to um, prevent stale conversations with um, interlocutors who are too familiar or too pandering or too close to situations. Um, and yeah, in those cases where it's done like that, and for example, in the case of Will and Paul, where I really didn't have that much relationship with either of them. Um, in those cases, I'll take on the role with some relish of being absolutely the sort of whip of that conversation, uh -huh. because I'm trying to keep hold of it. And I'm like, well, if that's what I'm doing, because I don't know these people very well, then that's the best I can do for the audience is mm. to try and um, manage it somewhat so that, I mean, if I'm able to keep a thread of it, then I can only hope that that's coming through for the audience too. Mm -hmm. And so since um, taking to those positions or situations with some kind of appetite, I've been told that, I've been told that that's something that um, I do, that audience, some audiences are relieved by because of this outsider position, because of not being like, oh, you know, not jumping into reminiscences myself about my own office experience or my own built work or my own frustrations. And for instance, I was asked, and it was a great experience to chair a conversation for uh, Falmouth University's uh, symposium on illustration recently. I don't know, I'm not an illustrator. I really, and of course my first question was to them, why on earth would you want me to do this? And they said, oh, we saw you chair a kind of difficult discussion between, <laughs> like, a housing designer, Barrett's Housing, and, like, Pablo Bronstein's uh, at the RIPA. Mm. 
and he just kind of handled it. So um, we thought he'd be good, and I was like, oh, okay. And yeah, in that situation, I was kind of out of my element. My job in my own head was to try and wrestle this into some kind of coherent structure. And if I can do that myself, then again, I, I hope that's what comes through for the audience so that one thing relates to another and that, you know, things become richer through a discussion. That is, to use phrases that are gross of our time, like, you know, a soft skill of being able to <laughs> sort of um, find a way into and out of and through subjects in a way that makes them legible and not in silos. I love soft as an adjective generally. Um, but to me, what you do is a kind of labor, actually. It's incredible. I can appreciate how challenging it is to be the whip in circumstances like that. And, um, it's so much fun, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very active. It's like canoeing or something. agenda at play in, in your work, you know, across the conversations you've mediated, the writing you've done for various architecture publications, the teaching you do. Um, I think one, one possible core might be this issue of um, capital and debt. Um, and broadly speaking, the kind of flow of money. Of money. money. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, like, you taught, a, you taught a, a studio at University of Westminster in 2007 called Design of the Deal. You're investigating how architecture performs in, finan in a financial sense. You also won a Graham Foundation grant yes. for a project of the same title. Yes. But I think, like, where I want to go first with this idea of finance in mind is. Um, your collaboration uh, earlier on with uh, Jack Self mm -hmm. in setting up the Real Foundation, mm -hmm. which um, kind of took finance as its basis for understanding the built environment. It was supposed to be a kind of broad spectrum, Real standing for Real Estate Architecture Laboratory, standing for a kind of broad spectrum place to investigate those questions between money and architecture. Mm. And I suppose if they were like, debates or events or exhibitions, then I suppose I would probably be the one to take a slightly greater lead on that. Mm -hmm. And if they were more to do with development and built experiments, which Jack was very keen on, then obviously he would have a higher lead on that. And publications we would negotiate. So Real Foundation was founded and Real Review was part of a thing that Real Foundation would produce. And with Real Review, again, Jack had been the reviews editor at Architectural Review until they decided they weren't going to do reviews anymore. <laughs> and I had been working at Blueprint until they jacked the price from right. £7 to £30 and it quit. Um, so we're both frustrated with the fact that there's so much thinking in architecture and so many people doing great things, but no place to fucking talk about it, mm. uh, really, mm. in print with mm -hmm. intelligence. And we both love editing. Jack likes writing more than I do. Um, he's 
or at least he's more confident with writing than I am. But we both really wanted to work on a publication, so we crowdfunded for that, and that was successful. Mm -hmm. um, um, I just I noticed that on your Twitter feed at the top is a pinned yeah post. A lot of people have been like, "Why haven't you taken that down?" I don't know. I'm really proud of having set it up. I'm really proud that people responded with the number, with the amount of crowdfunding that we got. Uh -huh. For me, just the pure test of like what we wanted to do and the fact of proving that there was an appetite for it, mm -hmm. that was great. That was still like a great, great moment. And um, insofar as my relationship with Jack, like that was still great. I still remember that as a great moment. I don't know what short circuited later. Mm -hmm. um, but it is still pinned there because I don't want to feel like it is erased. Yeah. It still did happen. And yeah. I'm still happy with it. it. I should find a better pin. <laughs> I should do something I don't know else. If I, yeah, I don't even know what the question was for me when I mentioned that. I just thought that's all right. It's just interesting <laughs> to try and get a sense of like where these, where the personal sense of ownership lies in past projects that are collaborative. Yeah, um, I yeah I want relinquish ownership of that project. I don't work on it. I didn't work on it. That was really sad because genuinely I love editing stuff and putting together a magazine is... I feel like it's maybe the most control that you can have in that situation. Mm. The most right you have to have. Like, with students, okay, I curate the curriculum, but with a sense of, oh my God, these, like, each of these 290 people are paying 9,000 pounds to be here, <laughs> fuck. Um, that does weigh quite heavily. And in an exhibition too, the large sums of money and visitors, architectural exhibitions are tough. Visitors will make what they will, institutions are never fully satisfied. Mm. With a magazine, you can really preen over every word and especially one that you founded. Mm. Um, so I was very sad about not working on that. That being said, I'm so proud that it, you know, I was in Stockholm last week and I saw it in like one of those really cool Stockholm bookshops and mm. I took a picture because I think for the first few months I wasn't able to fully look at a real review in the face, it hurt too much, but, but now I'm happy that it exists and mm. Jack's perfectly capable of um, making a really good project of it. I want to talk a bit about uh, like a struggle I had in, in like, in deciding to, or like figuring out a way to interview you, actually. Um, and again, like... Sorry for chain smoking. No! <laughs> also because we've been talking about what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting, my conundrum in like approaching um, someone who does take on multiple roles that are more um, ambient than foreground in terms of like um, mediating discussions between other cultural figures as opposed to embodying a sense of being a cultural figure oneself. Yeah. And it's interesting to like position you and Jack together. Yeah, that's perhaps why we're opposite. Though. Because like, <laughs> I, I, I didn't bat an eye in considering approaching him to have a conversation because um, his persona is so easy to represent. It's clear down to the point where he has a kind of personal brand almost that extends to the, the clothes he wears. Like here is someone who has made a very conscious decision to package himself in a specific way yeah, that, really that. that to me is so consumable and so appealing to 
um, to approach because in a lot of senses, it's a known entity. I know exactly what I'm working with and what to address and then even like banal things like what images I'm going to post on Instagram to, to kind of complement the interview. And so I, I, I was obviously knew who you were when I was speaking with him and I was thinking to myself like what would an interview with Shumi be like and like how is that represented, how is that packaged almost, what is the like the kind of PR um, <laughs> engine around that and uh, these are questions, question. yeah these are questions I imagine because I'm not a journalist obviously but I'm a kind of amateur um, I'm so glad. I'm an amateur journalist in some ways, and so the problems that I'm perceiving around how to approach a discussion with someone like you, they must be pervasive. Um, and then thinking more about it, it made the prospect of a conversation with you even more compelling, because um, it means that as an interviewer, I have to actually do a lot more work. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> no, that I haven't quite done yet, but I feel like this conversation is part of that work. Yeah, I mean, um, that's... It's a slight anxiety what you mentioned, actually. For instance, I don't know that I've ever encountered, at least not so directly, and I appreciate it, this difficulty in pigeonholing me, because I'm not often the subject of inquiry. <laughs> uh, you are the inquirer. Usually, yeah, because I don't know anything. I feel like I want to know stuff. Um, um, but in terms of packaging, I don't have a thing. I haven't done a PhD. Lots of people expect me to have done a PhD. Hmm. I had a PhD student up until recently, which was somewhat, um, yeah, gratuitous to have a PhD student when I, don't, I haven't been through the process of hmm. a PhD. Um, and I often worry about that, that I don't have a thing. People don't think, oh, Shumi Bose is about X, Y, Z, and I should have a thing, and why haven't I got one, and what would be my PhD if I were to do one? It could be any number of things. I could sit here and reel out probably five or six things just off the top of my head, but I often worry about it, but it also is, if I'm being, um, I don't know what, naive or indulgent or something, but um, exhilarating to not have that burden of I must represent a certain body of thought, I must know all the names of uh -huh. everyone involved and be able to cite a particular kind of language. It is a refuge to be somewhat um, not on the skin of things, I don't want to say that my engagement with things is necessarily superficial, but not to have wedded to a particular thread of investigation or research or discourse. Yeah, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's, it's fun, mm. but it's also extremely precarious. I feel like professionally, let's say, in terms of security, I would have done better to have mined a particular course of content subject or approach or something. Um, to be able to say, yeah, no, on this subject, you cannot get anyone better. Mm. I don't have that yet. Mm. I'm not sure I will have that. Mm -hmm. I'm not actively seeking to cultivate that. I've often, I, I mean, I think I just get a lot of energy from bouncing between a couple of roles and manage to keep what I think is my practice live by having a couple of different roles. So I would love to be able to continue mixing 
curation of a specific topic or, or set of content or working with a particular designer, artist or practitioner and at the same time having this um, much more broad spectrum. It can never be fully objective but sort of discuss its capacity with students or with the public. I want to advance both. And so there are projects that I want to get off the ground, one to do with people at the end of their life, another to do with particular comparison between brutalism here and in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't say that they're defining any particular line of inquiry or any subject expertise. They're just things that yeah. I think yeah. I have an enthusiasm for rather than a particular expertise. It just sounds so much like the, um, the impulse of the curator, the way you're talking right now. Just looking. I've, I found that quite um, compelling. Bullshit, isn't it? No, not at all, not at all. <laughs> no, I often feel like it's cheating. I mean, yeah, when I was 25, I was just looking, but now I've been doing an awful lot of stuff. I should own up to it. But, but what's wrong with just looking? I think that... It's also not untrue, uh -huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I listened to a few of the BBC um, programs you yes. hosted as well. That and was that, fun, yeah. That felt similarly eclectic and um, broad and disparate and yeah. about collecting um, and organizing discrete uh, contexts or encounters to say something larger. Um, so again, a very like strongly curatorial bent. Um, and it did feel like I was alongside just kind of just listening in a way. Um, <laughs> it was very fun to do. Um, most of the content was picked out by the producers. Oh, really? Okay. Um, but I was given a sort of box of beads, let's say, in terms of articles that they had either recorded or planned to record. And it was my job to stitch a certain set of them together uh -huh. and sort of say, okay, well, let's do this. Mm. And um, yeah, and then knit certain articles together and do some of them myself. Mm. And the direction I was given was just imagine you're sitting on the shoulder of whoever's listening to and just talking to them. Hmm. And this is a role that I'm very comfortable with, uh -huh. rather than like having an expertise on a particular subject. I and mean, again, since then I've been asked back onto the radio and, and onto things as somebody who has expertise in social housing, for instance. Which I'll take because I've had um, exposure to and opportunities to work with that particular subject. But I've, I don't know that I'm comfortable calling myself an expert. Uh -huh. that's, that's okay. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Bibio. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Shumi Bose and to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.